Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you'd like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, the music room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame, a place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to the music room. This week in the music room. I had a dad writing plays, films and TV. I had this role model who wrote things mm. for other people yeah. to appreciate or criticise. Ha ha. You know, you're, you are vulnerable, <laughs> obviously, when you're putting yeah. this stuff out there. You're, at, you're, you're opening for everything. Hello and welcome to the music room, the place where I chat with composers, songwriters and musicians about their formative years. The place where my guests leave an item and a piece of advice for you to find. So far we've had some wonderful items and some even better advice, so be sure to go and listen to the previous episodes. In this episode, you're going to hear from composer Alexandra Harwood, who most recently composed the music for the latest adaptation of All Creatures Great and Small for Channel 5 and PBS Masterpiece. You're going to find out how she became involved in music in the first place. It might have involved a womble. Can't say any more than that. But first, music stories. Currently in the news, Music Room alumnus Gary Clark is a guest on the latest album from Simple Minds, featuring on tracks Vision Thing, First You Jump and Natural. Vision Thing is out now and the album will be available from the 21st of October via BMG. Music Room guest Daisy Shute is playing Glastonbury this year. As of this recording, she won't have played yet, but as of publication day, Daisy will have played at Green Futures Field, the Bread and Roses stage and the Love Fields at Glastonbury. She'll be playing both solo and with the Herd Collective and the Maudlin Sisters. Now, I have a blankety blank here. I asked the Music Room community group on Facebook, when it gets too hot in the studio... I try to stay cool by. It has been hot recently, hasn't it? Uh, Mike Langley says, uh, it never gets hot. I'm underground like a mole. (laughs) Rod Williams says, I live in Wales. Not an issue. Fair dues. Proper tidy. Charles Gaskell, taking off all my clothes. Well, Charles, uh, don't quite know what to say. Reuben Cornell, exiting. I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to stay cool by exiting. Mm. Do you have any tips for staying cool in the studio on a hot day? Come and join the Music Room community on Facebook and tell us there. Link is in the show notes. Most recently, Alexandra Harwood scored the Jim Henson Company's short film Tall Poppy and the second series of the drama All Creatures Great and Small for Channel 5 and PBS Masterpiece, starring Samuel West, Patricia Hodge, Rachel Shenton and Nicholas Ralph, and is about to start scoring the third series. Prior to this, she composed the scores for Mike Newell's feature film, The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, starring Lily James, The Ballet Geisha for the Northern Ballet, and BBC Two documentary series Thatcher, A Very British Revolution, and its sequel series Blair and Brown, The New Labour Revolution. Let's find out what Alex is up to now and how she found music in the first place. 
Oh, and hang around until later when Alex will be leaving an item and a piece of advice for you to find in the music room. Here we go. Alexandra Harwood, composer, welcome to the music room. Thank you so much. How lovely to chat with you today. You are actually, Alex, the first guest that I've chatted with before to return. So you're on a previous podcast of mine, Creative Cuppa. Oh, that's nice to know. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's although you're in the same room, so it feels familiar. It does feel familiar, yeah. doesn't it? It's very nice Lovely. to see you again. And yeah. I will avoid covering what we covered in that episode, and I'll put a link in the show notes. So I encourage everybody to just go and listen to that. Hit pause now and go and <laughs> listen, listen to, to that, what we and then come back. About before it'd be like yeah. a bonus episode. <laughs> yeah. And on that, we spoke about your process for all creatures great and small, the adaptation that you've been working on. The Guernsey, I'm going to get this right this time, mm. the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society. Nearly. The oh. Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Peel Pie Yeah, it's hard, I know. It is, it is. <laughs> the mashed potato movie is as I call it. Can't remember if I said that last time. Forever now known as. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I've got composer brain. I don't know words. Oh, I have no It's only brain. notes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that was a brilliant film from Mike Newell. So I'm going to try not to duplicate things from that today. Thank you. But since we spoke, you've completed series two of All Creatures Great and Small. Yeah. uh, For Channel 5 and PBS Masterpiece. What would you say were the differences between one and two from your perspective? Oh, yeah. So quite a lot of difference. And I've just started series three and I'm seeing already a difference again. So the main difference, and this is an obvious answer, actually, is the stories because they change. Right. Yeah. So regarding the kind of drama, there's always going to be differences in that way. But the, the series looks the same. They've kept the beautiful similarity of, the, you know, the, the cinematography, the color, the grade, the costumes, all of this is familiar world. But the stories change and second series, slightly darker in tone, not like darker, but a little bit more serious in tone. The characters were evolving, maturing. Uh, slightly less comedy, a little bit more serious emotional stuff. But what really is going on story-wise in All Creatures is the growing romance and upcoming union of James and Helen. So all the way through series two, that's still growing. There was the engagement, you know, it's all kind of moving in that direction. So I had to kind of grow the music with them. But also we are very, very slowly inching towards World War II. And this story is based on Alf White, who wrote under the pseudonym James Harriet. It's his story. So it is real. His books are based on his real stories of what happened in his world. And so that is all kind of factual obviously the drama woven into this series there's other stuff created around it it gives a little bit of backstory to characters um so so series two just took this slightly more serious turn slight hint of war coming and series three which i've just begun so i haven't even seen it all yet but i've literally just begun is again just that nearer to world war Mm. two so I guess series four, which is also commissioned, um, and I don't know this as a fact yet, I'm guessing we enter the war at that point because I don't suppose they can spin that lead up 
well, I suppose they could do it in real time. Of course, then it, you could have twenty hundred series. Okay. <laughs> but, but I'm guessing next series it would be. But this series, I think, um, yeah, they just they just dip into the backstories of each character, and each character has a more complicated past because mm. we all do. So in that way, it's really lovely. The first series established the world, and it was lighter yeah. and little, you know, witty and jovial characters and everybody's just a little bit more serious now but really and but then the animal stories are still there and all and there's a lovely balance in all creatures between the jokes and the lighter side with this dark and it's a a, a balance that forever changes scene by mm. scene and within scene so musically that is the same and ongoing challenge is to be able to switch emotion within seconds and I'm oh, getting yeah. used to it because the language is, I've set up the language for the series, but our producers definitely like me to change the music a bit to each series. I'm always asked to kind of be, I suppose the word's innovative. It's quite a vague word and a frightening word to me, but you know, just to keep growing. Otherwise, because mm. we could just use the same stuff over and over and over again. And I do dip into some of the same themes, but then it would, I don't know if the audience would notice it being a bit stagnant, but I feel it. Because yeah. you think, oh, it's that theme again. You know, it's like it gets a bit boring. So I like to just twist it. With a series that is in a chronology, is in a chronology, yeah. is that the, the right yeah, phrase? Chronolo chronological, um, yeah, chronological, yeah. Where characters are developing and the shadow of war and, and stuff mm. like that, the music has to reflect that, doesn't it? Yeah. Reflect the evolution. Absolutely. Whereas if you have yeah. standalone episodes, then it's easier to... Yes. If you can watch them out of order, then yeah. same music. And um, I'm not, I've never scored an action series or an action movie so what i'm about to say might be incredibly wrong but i get the feeling <laughs> that with action there might be places where you especially when when they, let's say there's i don't know a james bond movie and there's lots of explosions going on and stuff uh and car chases i expect a lot of that material can be kind of repeated without too much notice because it's going under a lot of noise and action and bangs and but in all creatures i can't really repeat that blatantly because i can't you know we can't just do let's say a recording session and then just lift the recordings and put it on every cue let's say mm. repeated themes oh we'll just put that bit there because normally it's going under these scenes where people are talking i am very much writing to picture twisting and turning mm. melodies to not conflict with what somebody's saying at that certain time it it's so crafted and to reflect what they're saying absolutely. as well absolutely and, yeah. and particularly with these twists and turns of light and dark it's very rare that i can lift a cue from one series and put it on the next scene and go oh that works now matter of fact never mm. yeah. so it's quite a lot of work but really enjoyable it's never become repetitive for me in that feeling i and i like to change it as much as i can mm. and the hint of war has really allowed me in this series three so far to bring in some new themes helen and james you know getting more and more like their union coming together then that can now have their new theme because there's mm. one thing about building up a relationship but once you're together then that's another yeah. phase yeah so it's nice it's it's forever challenging Lots of potential still yeah uh, you mentioned action films. Is that on the bucket list? Oh, do you know, I think I, well, I'm terrified of it, to be honest. I, I have <laughs> yeah. this enormous self-doubt that I wouldn't know how to do it, but I'd, I'd love the challenge. I just don't know if I could do it. I, 
I feel that I've found certain holes in my ability lately. And, and one of them is very, very fast moving music like that. I've realized is a big challenge for me. Right. So I'm really trying to conquer that challenge. And, I, and the more and more I conquer it and try and do it, the more I'm in awe of the big, big scores that do that. Because it's hard, really hard to make it work. You think fast sure. music is easy. But the thing with fast music, and I remember this learning this way back at the Royal College of Music from my teacher, Joe Horowitz, is that fast music isn't just fast notes. It's not repetitive rhythm, da -la -la, da -la 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 -la. That won't create fast music. The thing that creates fast music is the harmony moving quickly. Because if you sit on one chord and go, da -la 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 -la, it will not feel fast. It just sits there. And that is a big challenge, I think. Yeah. It's fascinating musically. There you go, kids. Keep moving the harmony. Fast Music 101 with yes. Alex Harwood. Honestly, if I, <laughs> if I crack it, I'll teach that module. Excellent. There we go. Yes. <laughs> I think you could write a dissertation on it, quite honestly. Yeah. Brilliant. Another thing we spoke about on our last chat was the geisha for the Northern Ballet that you scored, which unfortunately was shut down because of the pandemic. Mm. And what's happened since then? Well, so, and just remind me, Gareth, in that chat we last had, because I've mm. got terrible memory, had we just entered lockdown, hadn't we? It was 21, 21, I think we, it was last year we had ours. So we, we were kind of in the midst of lockdowns. I can't remember really what had brewed by then, but really what happened was it was sad and it's kind of emotionally really hurt me, but it's not quite the end of the road yet. But basically after it shut down and we had these, amazing across the board five-star reviews in all the papers the critics um and that was just really lovely and and that kind of redeemed the fact that it only had one night that we'd had this incredible mm. first night and then it gave us all hope that oh well you know when the pandemic's over we can bring it back but what's happened is i suppose it's controversial in this way that there was a murmuring of trouble about cultural appropriation from one of the company mm. dancers who wasn't in the ballet and that stirred uh i mean i'm cutting this story short but it stirred fear from the company to bring it back because of the climate we're in and the cultural appropriation side of it on the surface you could say looked that way because i'm white the composer uh the choreographer is white and the set designer are white and the fact is, though, that we had a Japanese consultant on the ballet. Uh, I'd say 80% of the cast of the ballet were Asian, uh, with the leads being Japanese themselves. That was a first, really, for mm. that kind of ballet to be written for a company that primarily had Asian dancers. But really what happened in the end, other than this stirring going on, and, and it did cause a flare-up, and particularly with a... A movement in New York um, who kind of put in some wrong complaints about the ballet because they hadn't even seen it. Then the critics circle in London, who had unanimously given it great reviews, had nominated our choreographer Kenneth Tyndall for a best choreography for the ballet. And this movement, Yellowface, asked for that nomination to be taken away from Kenny, saying that he didn't deserve it. And so the critics circle ran a two-week inquiry into the ballet because they didn't want to take away their nomination. So they ran a two-week inquiry, very thorough, interviewed every single dancer, interviewed the company, looked at the making of Geisha, 
uh, and we were found to be innocent as such, that everything that we had all done for this ballet was found to be okay, yeah. that nobody had felt that there had been any cultural appropriation. There were many, many things, but it was mm. all found by the critics circle and their inquiry to be okay. But I think it's put fear into the company to bring it back for all the obvious reasons. One, you know, they don't want to deal with that controversy anymore. And, but recently the Royal Opera House have just put on now Madame Butterfly again. And that's another work that gets a lot of trouble put upon it now for cultural appropriation. And so they also got lots of specialists in to make sure that they were approaching the opera with the right kind of respect mm. to that culture yeah. to bring in historians, uh, movement specialists, etc., to make sure that they are doing it in the best respectful way to that culture. And I think we are at a time now where cultural appropriation is serious and it absolutely needs to be looked at. And these movements like Yellow Face are so important. Mm. But when it comes to positive discrimination, mm. it seems that there's this imbalance going on. And I don't know how to get to real equality, but for me, ideally, real equality would be that we could all tell each other stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as long as respect has been made as long as yeah. research is made as long as you've got everybody involved from both sides of both cultures being involved mm. and they're doing it in film and tv now you know it's not 100 percent brilliant of but course, it's yes. so much better it's moving in the right direction yeah um, so it's been really tough i i have personally found it heartbreaking because yeah i spent a year writing that ballet you get so emotionally involved in things don't you yeah. when you're writing and it's, it's quite right that people are allowed to challenge decisions and yes. ask questions, but it's not right that the people who should be listened to are just the ones who shout the loudest. Yeah. You know, ask the question, challenge the decisions, but yeah. accept the answers, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe this person has accepted the answers, although I don't think he has, the person who challenged it, but the fact that it's now planted fear to bring mm. it back is the sad bit. But it's obviously a very hot topic right now, and I am not a specialist, but they, you know, they did their inquiry. Very sorry that that has happened. Thank you. Um, and everything crossed, that something positive comes out of that. Yeah. So, are you ready to go back in time? I am ready and prepared a lot of years to cover. <laughs> Good luck, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Love a glissando, yeah. We're back in time now. <laughs> what are your earliest memories of music, Alex? So I, well, you know how memories are sometimes planted by parents, you know, like all pictures that you see something and you go. So I think my really early memories are very much planted by what my parents told me because I started playing the piano when I was three. So I don't really remember my three-year-old memories, but I have got some really early memories. So my mum... Uh, my mum had been a ballet dancer early in her career and then became a stage manager and met my dad. We're talking very early in her career. So I think she was a professional ballet dancer until she was about 18 or went to ballet school. Oh, wow. And then uh, maybe around 1920 became a stage manager and then met my dad and they had their first kid when she was 21, 22. So we're, we're talking about a, a very short amount of time and particularly for that generation mm. back in the... 
I guess, 50s. But anyway, she was, though, incredibly musical, my mum. So even though she hadn't studied it per se, she was incredibly knowledgeable, much more well, than me. Well, of course, ballet and dance. Yes. It's almost a musical art form in itself. Yes, it is. I mean, she had massive understanding and incredible memory for music and history. And my dad, too, he loved music. So my early, early memories was them playing piano duets together. My mum was a bit better than my dad at the piano, but they would just play the piano a lot together. They had a lovely grand piano in our house, and that was my immediate access. There was a piano, and it was in the same room as our television, the sitting room. You know, we're talking now, I was born in 66, so we're talking a long time ago when there were three channels, and then eventually four channels in my childhood. But there was limited TV. My dad was a writer for film and television and theatre, so um, it was a kind of household of arts. Dad liked gadgets, so we got the very first video player, and I would watch movies over and over and over again. But the reason I'm saying that is because my early, early memory of music was that my mum took me, I was the third child, so I guess my brother and sister might have been at nursery, and mum would take me on her lap to her piano lessons. And the deal was... I, I wouldn't let go of my mum. I was very, very attached to her. So she couldn't really leave me, let's say, with a nanny or somebody because I wouldn't let her. So the deal was I was allowed to go with her as long as I was completely silent and she would bring a colouring book and I would sit there colouring and mum would have her piano lessons. But what I think, I remember the colouring, by the way, I do remember that. But what I think happened is I must have absorbed a lot of music in my ear very, very early on. And that kind of repetitive type of practicing and piano lesson music. So I think must, something must have been going in very, very early. I then went to the piano straight away as early as I probably could. But I do remember at the age of three, mum. well, this is the memory mum told me, that I was watching some telly and I went to the piano and picked out the tune on the piano. And that's when mum said, she went, ooh, you know, she noticed that I had picked it out in the right key. Then I started school at four. And so by then, mum had already caught on to the fact that I was making up stories at the piano. So I put storybooks on the piano and make up tunes, having not had piano lessons, but I just pick out little things and illustrate the stories. I don't really, rem wow. I do remember that later, but not at that's that a, age. That's an incredibly powerful connection at that Age, yeah, early, early. I mean, honestly, to be the real fact is, I guess I was born with this um, ear and ability, and like, it certainly wasn't learned to that age. Yeah. At age of four, I started school and had my first piano lessons. And my piano teacher was incredible, and she taught me to read music, obviously, very, very early. So I could actually read music before I could read words. Uh, so that was my first language. And she got, she was an incredible incredible teacher. She did games with me and taught me theory very, very early. So I got so much early training and maybe I was, maybe that happened because they also realized I was understanding it, you know, mm. maybe I was absorbing it and maybe I was a very good young student because I guess teaching and student go hand in hand. But then things flew really, really quickly at that point. So then the school I went to was called Bedell's School. And they were very open to the arts, put on productions and, oh, it's incredible school, still is. So then my first kind of teachers, when I was six or seven, they saw that I was dancing in rhythm in, that, in our little early 
eurythmic classes. <laughs> and so my music teacher then, the head of music, when I was seven, encouraged me to write my first musical. So I wrote, and by then I was writing for instruments. I was really very quick at learning to compose and, and I could write music by then. So I wrote my first musical based on the Wombles and we put it on. Wow. And so the whole, like, my whole class of whatever it was, 15 kids were in my musical, The Wombles. All and going, then, do we wear, have to wear these hot costumes? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I remember it. I, it was so lovely. So I was labelled so early as a composer, I have literally no memory of the fact of anything other than thinking I'm a composer. And actually to this day, I've always wondered, would I have been a composer had I not had those kind of teachers that encouraged it? Because if somebody hadn't said, hey, write a musical, mm. I may never have thought of that. And when I look at my kids where they went to school, which was lovely and they learnt their instruments, but they didn't have teachers like that. To be fair, I don't know if I've ever heard of a teacher advising a seven-year-old to write a musical. No, but I mean, then, you know, amazing, you, isn't it? You, it is something you might say, but I, I think it depends on the child, doesn't it? I don't expect many children to turn around and go, okay. And do it. Yeah. <laughs> Put I mean, it on. that thing I actually don't really remember. I don't know what I was like at that age. I, yeah. I really don't have much memory. I definitely remember feeling different to other people. I always felt like an outsider, not belonging. You know, all of those things which I've now read in my adult life, it's very normal, especially for musicians, often mm. bullied at school. I was, you know, all that feeling of being different. And I'm not sure why that is, but musicians i think are quite alike in that way yeah but at, then at the age of nine and this is where my memories really kick in then i was asked to write another musical and i wrote um this is my first proper proper memory of composing so i wrote uh beatrix potter's taylor of gloucester and it was a big musical we did for the whole school and the school we went up to the senior school of Beedells to perform it in what they call an area called the Quad. It's a really big, beautiful area where they sometimes put a stage up. So they had the whole upper school watching, good 500, 600 kids and parents. I was very, very excited. And the costumes were beautiful. I don't know who even took charge of the costumes. I think we had an amazing wardrobe department at Beedells run by a really wonderful woman called Rachel Carey, I think her name was. And she, these beautiful Victor like old Victorian or dresses. I mean, it was it just like the book, actually. It was just perfectly done. And I remember a giant teacup um, on the props on the stage because I don't know if you know the story of the Taylor of Gloucester, but it's just the most beautiful story. But anyway, I was meant to be in the little orchestra that I'd written for, and I was going to play the recorder. We all had to learn the recorder at Beatles. That was another unique thing. I don't know what schools do nowadays for first mm. instruments, but every single kid in my school had to learn the recorder. Yeah. So the it's kind of a very early wider opportunities, wasn't it? it yeah. It was. It's a great yeah. instrument to start. I, I learned on. the recorder for a while. It's an easy one to quickly play, to learn You can put some it in fingerings. your bag. Yeah. It's a yeah. perfect school instrument. Yeah. So I think my orchestra probably had some recorders, a bit of percussion. There was one piece I wrote only for teacups and tables everybody had to knock because the little mice live in the teacups <laughs> so it was really really fun to write but I, I was meant to be in the orchestra playing the the recorder and some of my friends were in it they were the mice or whatever you know the various characters and on the day 
of the first performance. And it, I was very excited. My parents were going to come, obviously, to the performance and everything. We were warming up and everybody was getting changed into their costumes. We were, you know, nine. Mm. Um, and one of my friends did a handstand up against the wall and came down, didn't see me behind her and kicked me in the face. And my cheek got swollen and I couldn't play the recorder. But oh, it no. turned into a little fortuitous move because it meant I got to watch it rather than be in it. And I have to say, it was the most fantastic experience because I got to see from the audience my musical and I felt very, that's my first memory is being really proud of wow. it. And I, to this day, remember the cheers of the audience when I took a bow. And I know this sounds incredibly like narcissistic and all kind of about myself, but that is my first memory, the excitement of having written this thing that... I don't think it's necessarily narcissistic, is it? It's, it's, it's incredibly character-building, isn't it? Yeah. For a nine-year-old to know mm. that what you did had that effect, that's a real life lesson, isn't it? It was a life-changing moment regarding, one, my addiction to that feeling. Like, yeah. forever, <laughs> I think people get that in the performing arts, wanting the, oh, I don't know, not the accolades, but the response... The reassurance, to, I suppose, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, and to this day, if I get, you know, on, on All Creatures has just been such a joy for me, and I get fan mail quite often, mm. and every single time it really touches me because mm. the things people take time to write to me, that's lovely in itself. To say such nice things about my music or to the people who take a lot of time to tell me why my music made an impact on them it's like how lovely yeah. you know that's really what you want isn't it when you write music you want to touch people yeah so to get a response it's not because of going oh well done me i must be great because it's never that i mean my demons are bigger than anything because most of the time my demons are telling me i'm rubbish so i think most people have that in the creative arts we're we're hard on ourselves mm. so when you're feeling very insecure about your actual abilities which to this day i am to get people saying, oh, I really loved that, or it really moved me, or I used it at my wedding, you think, oh, how lovely, you know. Yeah. It's the yeah. thing that keeps us going. It really is, yeah. yeah. You know, having a positive impact. Yeah. And you don't, like you say, you don't necessarily need that feedback, but when it happens, it's, yeah, it just makes it all so worthwhile, doesn't it? Yeah. And also, yeah. For me, it really makes it worthwhile because I didn't, I, I don't know about all composers, I did not go into music to do it for myself. Mm. I did it because if you write music for you yourself. You did it because your teacher said, write musical. Yeah, well, that actually, that's <laughs> the truth, isn't it? She told me. But if you do it on your own in a room and nobody hears it, yeah, I suppose that could bring you some pleasure. But isn't it, isn't music meant to be heard? You yeah. know, isn't, isn't the whole point of this that people listen to it or watch it or it's to be Facts, listened my, to. My old lecturer it? at uni said, music isn't music until it's heard. Well, that's the truth. And I think it? he was just trying yeah. to kick us into, you know, getting off the page. You can yeah. write it down, but it's not going to be any use to anyone in a draw. And I think that's the difference between our generation. And I'm sorry if I'm putting you into my generation because you're probably younger of than course, me. Of course, no, no, no. But <laughs> our generation who were really paper and pencil... Yeah. The difference is we literally couldn't hear it until it was played by yeah. instrumentalists, I, other than um, obviously the beginning of computer music um, synth started then mm. for me. So, but, but only just really. 
or maybe a bit before. But nowadays, of course, with logic and sample libraries and all this stuff, people literally could write it for themselves and hear it. And that's okay. You know, mm. I mean, if it brings you pleasure, great. And it doesn't have to be heard by people. Mm. But for me and my generation, uh, that I, I guess I could have sat in a room playing the piano for myself. That would have been the equivalent and that would have been fine. But that wasn't my, I had a dad writing plays, films and TV. I had this role model who wrote things mm. for other people yeah. to appreciate or criticize. Ha ha. You know, you're, you are vulnerable, <laughs> obviously, when you're putting yeah. this stuff out there. You're, at, you're, you're opening for everything. And I mean, there's the lesson, isn't it? If yeah. you're just going to do it for yourself, that's fine. But if it's just fear holding you back, then that's not so good, yeah. is it? You need to, yeah. you know, but if people like it, they like it. That's, that's why it's subjective. Yeah. It is subjective. They don't have to like it. I, I, you know, that's why I really love film. Actually, I love all arts, but why I love it. I think one of the things I love the most is that not everybody will love everything. Yeah. I love the fact that it will cause discussion, argument, mm. hate, love. I mean, isn't that what life is about anyway? The dark, the light, and the disagreement. I mean, yeah. we've got it everywhere in this world, politics. Absolutely. And know, certainly in our jobs where you're dealing with production companies and directors and producers, something that can get confused as well is if you get notes back and they say, well, no, that scene is wrong. They're not necessarily saying your music is bad. No. It's just not right for the scene. And, it's not uh, right for the scene and for their taste. Because yeah. for another director, what you've written for that scene might be perfect, but it's not their exactly. vision. And after yeah. all, you are working, as James Horner said, you, it, our job is proprietary. We belong to others. Yeah. A film is a synergy anyway of all its components. It's not one thing. It's not, it, even a director will say that once they've got the script and they shoot it, it becomes another thing anyway. And we all know yeah. that from the edit. The moment it gets into the edit, it becomes something completely different to the script. And once mm. actors interpret their lines, it becomes something different when it's shot and on and on that goes and then adds sound design and the music and it becomes this own monster. Yeah. Massive so, collaboration. A massive collaboration, but mm. off, but in the end, it's normally the director's vision or maybe the producer's yeah. as well. And then you are serving them as well as the drama. So to take criticism, it can't be personal. Yeah. Unless, I suppose, they said to you, Alex, you're crap. And then, <laughs> I guess, you could slightly take it personally. Yeah. But even then, that's their opinion. And it doesn't have to. It's not that it's wrong for the scene, Alex. Yeah, it's just, just that don't you're like really your music. <laughs> yeah, that never happened. That never happened. And didn't well, Hans certainly... Zimmer say, you're not a composer till you've been fired. But I have to say, touch wood, yeah, I have not been fired. But then he's right, I'm not a composer. <laughs> oh, yes, you are. I don't well. know. Yeah. You were a composer at seven, it seems. At so, seven. Uh, second musical by nine. Amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess your mentors growing up then, uh, certainly your, your parents were massive role models for you. Yeah. The teacher who told you to write a musical. Yeah, that was, was a... Melanie Fuller, still absolutely alive and absolutely still in touch with her. I mean, we go through phases of seeing each other quite a lot and then not at all. And my first piano teacher, who's still one of my old best friends, mum. I mean, I'm still in oh, touch with wow. them. I mean, these people have been part of my life, my whole life. And that the school Beedles, you know, teachers, we called them by their first names there. It was this incredibly close community. And it was a boarding school, even though I was a day person. But 
Mm. It was a very special, close community. And the teachers were the kind of people that the ones that you loved, you normally stayed in touch with for the yeah. rest of your life. It was that kind of place. Well, if and you're listening, Alex's yeah. teachers, thank you. I'll send them. Thank the you for doing a good job. Thank you. Always. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I think every time I've ever spoken about, you know, my early life as such, I, I can't help but not, you know, I have to talk about them because yeah. I definitely wouldn't be the composer I am if it hadn't been for them. I can yeah. guarantee you. Yeah. Fantastic. So I am asking each guest, Alex, to leave an item that would have helped them in their formative years and a piece of advice in the music room for others to find. What item would you like to leave for others? Well, there are so many things that would be lovely to leave in a room, but I think depending on, let's say it's for an upcoming composing student, somebody going into classical or into film, mm. I or at Delhi, I would leave uh, the Forsyth book of orchestration. Okay. It was my Bible, is my Bible, and it was the one that my teacher, Joseph Horowitz, uh, told me was his Bible. And I'd like to pass on my Bible. And it's not that you read it from cover to cover, although you could, but it's one of those orchestration books I dip into at any minute and go, oh, how, how would that double stop work on the violin? Or, yeah. you know, it's something that I've used so many times. So that's what I leave. Fantastic. That goes into the music room. And what piece of advice would you like to leave for others to find? I would say, again, if this is for composers, particularly going into film and television, although maybe all composers, any musician, but to listen to as much music as humanly possible throughout your life, especially as a young person and every single genre and love it all and find the stuff you hate and mm. listen to all of it and in a way other than listen to it maybe over and over again but if it's the classical repertoire find a score and look at that whilst you listen and even imitate it practice mm. imitating it but that would be particularly going into film and tv i think you wouldn't regret it fantastic i will put that into the music room as well nice alex it's been Delightful as ever. Thank you for joining me in the music room. Thank you so much. What a lovely podcast to do.